Welcome to Lovers Forever. In the last episode, we focused more on Ava's career happenings, as Frank didn't really have any. He had no television or radio show, no record deal, no movie deal, and only a smattering of concert appearances. So he found himself with plenty of time to read. He was, like Ava, self-conscious about his lack of education, and was therefore an avid reader of good books. Frank had become obsessed with one book in particular over the course of 1952. It was called From Here to Eternity, a novel about several members of a U.S. Army infantry company stationed in Hawaii in the months leading up to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It was an acclaimed, best-selling book. It won the National Book Award. And there was this character in it that fascinated Frank. The character was Angelo Maggio, who is a quick-talking, slender Italian guy from Brooklyn, whose drinking and hot temper always land him in trouble. He gets put in the stockade for fighting some military police, and then tries to desert, only to be caught, brutally beaten, before being dishonorably discharged. In March of 1951, the head of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn, had bought the screen rights for the book for what was at that time an unusually large sum of $85,000. Once Frank had read the book, he became convinced that he had to play Maggio in the Columbia adaptation. Frank identified deeply with Maggio, but he also believed that if he got this role it would turn his career around. After Frank returned to Los Angeles from his trip to Hawaii that summer, he started sending telegrams to everyone associated with the film adaptation of From Here to Eternity. He sent them to Harry Cohn, director Fred Zinneman, producer Buddy Adler, and screenwriter Daniel Teradash. He sent them telegrams every week, trying to persuade them that he was the only person who could play the part of Maggio. He even signed all the telegrams, not as Frank but as Maggio. He wasn't exactly in demand as an actor, however. Frank went to lunch with Harry Cohn and begged for the part. He even said he'd do it for expenses, meaning he wouldn't ask for a salary. He would essentially work for free if Cohn would give him the part. Cohn said no. So Ava attempted to leverage her own star power, just like she had done with her MGM contract where she demanded a clause that she and Frank would do a movie together. She appealed to Harry Cohn's wife, Joan, showing up at Joan's house one day unannounced. Ava was nervous. When Joan offered her something to drink, she asked for straight vodka. She gulped it down like water and then came out with her request. Please cast my husband as Maggio in that movie. She told Joan that she was afraid her husband would kill himself if he didn't get the part. This isn't that much of an exaggeration. During the fall of 1952, Hank Santacola took great care to make sure that Hank's 38 was unloaded at all times and that the bullets were kept in a place Sinatra couldn't find. He'd been talking morosely about the meaninglessness of life. He depended on a schedule of uppers in the morning and downers at night to sleep which likely made his depression even worse, not to mention the alcohol. Joan said to Harry Cohn that Ava had come to visit and plead on her husband's behalf. 
So Harry invited Ava to their house for dinner, where Ava said, You know who is right for that part of Maggio, don't you? That son-of-a-bitch husband of mine. For God's sake, Harry, I'll give you a free picture if you just test him. Ava kept all of this secret from her husband. She understood he had his pride. Looking back on it today, it might seem like she didn't do enough to secure him a part in a movie, in any movie, but it's worth remembering how Hollywood was structured in the early 1950s. It was the last gasp of the old Hollywood studio system. Ava was under contract to MGM, and as a contract player, even a powerful one, she still had very little say over basically anything. She didn't get to pick her own movies, she was assigned to things. If she were loaned out to another studio, MGM would charge that studio a commission and then pocket that money, meaning Ava would only make her MGM salary, even if the other studio was paying extra to borrow her. As we have already seen, she could be suspended without pay for refusing to do low-quality movies. This is why, just a few years later, Marilyn Monroe would rebel and form her own production company, It was the only way she could have any real control over what movies she starred in, how much money she earned, who she worked with. Ava wasn't as ambitious as Marilyn, but I bring up that comparison to illustrate just how hard it was for contract players to have any meaningful control over their careers, especially if they were women. Today, an A-list star might be able to pressure a director or a studio head to give her husband a part in a movie. But back then, actors and actresses simply didn't have as much power. And Frank would have been seen almost as box office poison at this point. For their part, at least MGM had given Ava a good movie to do next. Mogambo, a remake of the 1932 picture Red Dust, which had starred Clark Gable and Jean Harlow. The original had been set in Indonesia and centers on a tempestuous love triangle between the owner of a rubber plantation, a sex worker, and a married woman. This new version was set in Kenya, where Clark Gable's character runs a lucrative business guiding white travelers on safari and catching wild animals for zoos and circuses. Ava would reprise the role originally played by Jean Harlow, a woman implicitly coded as a call girl who falls in love with Clark Gable when her sugar daddy doesn't show up for the safari and leaves her stranded in Kenya, without plain fare home. Clark Gable's character falls in love, meanwhile, with a young anthropologist, played by Grace Kelly, who is traveling with her husband to research gorillas. It was the third on-screen pairing Ava and Clark had together. And it was a surreal moment for Ava, who had watched the original Red Dust in the movie theater with her mother when she was only nine or ten years old. In early November 1952, Frank and Ava boarded a Strata cruiser en route to Nairobi. It was, in fact, their first wedding anniversary. For Ava, it was something of a momentous occasion. She'd been married twice, but never for a whole year. When the plane stopped in Cairo for refueling, a reporter got on board and attempted to take a picture of the couple. Frank chased him out of the plane, running down the tarmac in his pajamas. The principal cast of Mogambo convened at the New Stanley Hotel in Nairobi for a few days before filming began. They were supposed to get a tan and develop a rapport. Donald Sindon, who played Grace Kelly's husband, 
had dinner with Grace and Clark Gable the first couple nights. He said to Clark, when is Ava coming down? And Clark said, she's here. She won't come down. She has all her meals sent up to her room. Donald Sinden thought that this was not very sporting. He was English. And went upstairs to get her. He knocked on her door and told her he was coming to take her down to dinner. After a pause, the door opened, and there was Ava in a rather sheer dressing gown that left nothing to the imagination. She looked him up and down, in her way. You've come to take me down to dinner? Yes. Okay, she said. I'll need to take a bath first. And then she went into the bathroom, leaving the door open, and turned on the tap. Sinden claims he didn't look in on her in the bathtub. I kind of feel like maybe he did. But at any rate, she told him to help himself to a drink. Then she came out again, wrapped in the same sheer dressing gown, looking around the room for something. God damn it, she said, flinging aside a tin of Nivea cream. I thought that was my Dutch cap. Dutch cap was a euphemism for a diaphragm. So this was Donald Sinden's first encounter with the world's most gorgeous woman. He was charmed, just like everyone else. He got her to come down to dinner, and after that they became great friends. Where Frank was when all of this was happening is a mystery. Needless to say, it would have greatly stoked his jealousy, always so close to the surface. Mogamba was an enormous undertaking, involving a crew of 600 and locations spread across three countries, Kenya, what is now Tanzania, and Uganda. In addition to the personnel required for any film, Mogambo also required hunters, guards, guides, nurses, extras from local tribes, the expert canoe paddlers of the Congo's Wajinia tribe, and a witch doctor. The Mau Mau uprising had recently begun in Kenya, and the movie company had its own 30-man police force, in addition to the protection of the Lancashire Fusiliers and the Queen's African Rifles. Every cast member was issued a weapon to protect themselves. A small airplane flew back to Nairobi every other day with the rushes, which were then put on another plane to London so the film could be processed. Therefore, it was several days before they knew what anything they shot looked like. The initial location shoot took place on the Kagera River, and a village of 300 tents sprouted up. There was a hospital tent with an x-ray machine, and even a tent that served as a jail for crew members who got too drunk. Frank hated it. The stars of the film, and himself, lived in relative comfort. Fancy food was flown in from France, along with French wine and good liquor. Water was drawn from the nearby river and heated for their baths and showers. But the temperatures rose well into the hundreds during the day, and dust blew everywhere. People who knew Frank often mentioned that he had compulsive personal hygiene habits, and one shower a day wasn't enough for such sticky, dusty conditions. And director John Ford ordered Frank around like the fifth wheel he was, saying things like, Make the spaghetti, Frank. That's also what we would call a racist microaggression today. John Ford was an asshole to basically everyone. He was a brilliant filmmaker, 
one of the best of his era, but he was also a noted sadist who delighted in humiliating people. I guess Hollywood has always been willing to make excuses for badly behaved men who produce great art. Clark Gable believed in a spirit of professional solidarity, and when Ford tried to belittle him, Gable just refused to shoot anything until the director adjusted his attitude. Donald Sinden, an Englishman, received a special brand of the Irish director's derision. He blamed me personally for all the problems of Ireland from the time of William of Orange, said Sinden. Ford was also mean to Ava. One of the first things he told her when he met her was that he had wanted Maureen O'Hara to play her role. But one day when Ford berated Ava for swearing on set after a botched take, she told him he could take the handkerchief he liked to chew on and shove it up his ass. So John Ford took stock of the situation on an MGM film with two MGM megastars and made a course correction. A few days later, he told Ava she was damn good. John Ford and Ava Gardner worked together well, it turned out, once he treated her with respect. He helped her create one of her most acclaimed performances in this film. She was even allowed to improvise. While Ava was off filming... Frank stayed by the tent all day in a camp chair and reread from here to eternity for the thousandth time. When would Harry Cohn call him back? He was in a terrifically bad mood. And it seems to be on the set of this film that his marriage to Ava started breaking down for real. From the very early days, their arguments had often been a bizarre form of foreplay. And they made up as spectacularly as they fought with each other. But by now, three years in, too much had happened. Over time, their suspected jealousies had been proven real, as we detailed in the last episode. There had been that lost pregnancy in May, supposedly the result of a violent argument between the couple. Frank had hurt Ava, and Ava had hurt Frank too many times. Their love affair had turned into a war of attrition. There was also the noxious poison of Frank's misogyny, what he expected the power dynamic should be between them. It killed him that his wife was more successful than he was. It killed him that his wife didn't need him, and in fact, he depended on her to pay for everything. He couldn't be happy for her, even though she had achieved real success and stardom. He wasn't just jealous of whatever man she'd slept with on a lonely night away from him. He was jealous of her career, her celebrity, the fact that members of the public came up to ask for her autograph instead of his. And so their arguing was too caustic, hurt too deep. Their arguments weren't always followed by making love now. And when they did that, at least according to Ava, half the time it wasn't even satisfying anymore. She was no longer certain she loved him. And then, on November 14th, a plane from Nairobi brought a cable for Frank in the morning mail. Nobody knows who this cable came from. Some say Buddy Adler, some say Bert Allenberg, who was Sinatra's new agent at William Morris. But the cable said the following. Frank was to report to Culver City for a screen test for the role of Maggio in From Here to Eternity. Frank was elated, but then worried. He didn't have the price 
of a ticket from a remote part of Kenya all the way back to Culver City. So he asked Ava for the money. She agreed at once. She could make MGM pay for it anyway. She told him to go knock him dead. And she was happy for him in that moment. She knew that role meant everything to him. Frank had had a two-week gig lined up in New York just before Thanksgiving. He might as well stay there in America for the interim between the screen test and his shows, he said to Ava. She assented, rather coolly. Maybe with him gone for a while, she'd miss him again. But she knew what it meant for him to be gone so long. She knew he'd find company. Frank had no time to think about any of this. He packed in a great rush, kissed her, and boarded the same plane that had brought in the telegram. Ava's pitch for her husband had probably helped. But in the end, the tide turned toward Frank because Harry Cohn's preferred actor, Eli Wallach, was temporarily unavailable. Frank made it from Nairobi to London and then from London to New York without any problems. But he missed his flight to L.A. when customs agents took him aside and searched his belongings for over two hours. No one would tell him why. The next day, he went to Idlewild to catch another flight, but that plane was running late because of mechanical problems. It transpired that he had been held up the day before because someone had sent a letter saying that Sinatra was smuggling diamonds into the United States. He had, in fact, spirited away some diamond jewelry belonging to Ava, but he left it in the Savoy's safety deposit box in London. Ava didn't want the Mau Mau rebels to get her jewelry, apparently. Finally, the next day, Frank made it to Los Angeles for his screen test. In the test, he had to play two scenes where his character Maggio is drunk. In the first, he interrupts a discussion between Pruitt and Lorene, an escort, and pretends to shoot craps with cocktail olives. In the second, he eggs on a couple of military police officers into beating him up. The screenwriter, Daniel Teradash, thought Eli Wallach's test was better, but the director, Fred Zinneman, was bowled over by Frank's test. Eli Wallach was a large, powerful man. Frank was only five foot seven and still skinny as a rail. That made his character's doomed bravado very moving. Maggio is supposed to be an underdog. Frank, in 1952, was definitely an underdog. He brought emotional truth to his portrayal. And that appealed to Zinneman, a veteran filmmaker who had directed movies like High Noon. It would take almost two months before casting was finalized. Frank was sure he'd done a good job, but now he had to wait. Ava wasted no time, it seems, in finding other companions for herself once her husband left. She had a fling with the big game hunter Bunny Allen, who was there on set as a guide. Allen would brag about his affair with Ava for years, but a production coordinator named Eva Monley said, He was not her type of man, I think. He was always busy with other women, and that was not to her liking. A one-night encounter. Give him two nights. But Bunny did take Ava on a mini safari in the bush, where they inadvertently walked straight into a large herd of elephants. There were other men in the company who came back to Ava's tent. Eva Monley remembered that she found a prop man who was, quote, rather good. 
Monley knows this because she walked by Ava's tent quite often, and Ava would come out and tell her about the man she'd been with the night before. Monley recalls all of this to Gardner biographer Lee Server without seeming judgmental at all. Maybe that's why Ava went to talk to her about her affairs. But while Frank was gone, Ava made an unwelcome discovery. She was pregnant. It was Frank's. She'd been faithful for a while before coming to Kenya. But she didn't want to continue with the pregnancy. She figured it out when she was about a week late, very early on in the pregnancy. But she was already experiencing symptoms like nausea. I'm going to quote directly from Ava's memoir here. She wrote, I had the strongest feelings about bringing a child into the world. I felt that unless you were prepared to devote practically all your time to your child in its early years, it was unfair to the baby. If a child is unwanted, and somehow they know that, it is handicapped from the time it is born. Not to mention that MGM had all sorts of penalty clauses about their stars having babies. If I had one, my salary would be cut off. For these reasons, Ava elected to have the pregnancy medically terminated. There's secondhand reports of Ava's decision where people say she did it because she was angry at Frank, and that may have been true. But what Ava's saying in her memoir also makes a lot of sense. She and Frank had never had a stable home life. Quite frankly, a baby born in an environment of constant yelling, drinking, and general strife between parents could be legitimately traumatic for that baby. Ava had started to doubt the strength of her feelings for Frank. It was reasonable for her to be apprehensive about bringing a baby into the world when her marriage was not on solid ground. And when had it ever been? Marriage is, at its most essential, a feat of astounding optimism. But Ava didn't have so much optimism about things anymore. And she didn't want the process of having a child to alter her body. It was her greatest asset, and why she got paid so well. She was still financing Frank's lifestyle. She had to factor that in. She went to John Ford and told him what she was going to do. He tried to talk her out of it. He was a devout Catholic. And he assured her he would use camera angles and such to hide the evidence of her pregnancy once she started showing. But Ava was adamant. This is what she needed to do. And eventually, John Ford came around. Then she notified her MGM publicist and her agent that she was going to have an abortion. This had the potential to be a giant scandal back in 1952, so the MGM front office cabled John Ford. The cable euphemistically referenced Ava's intended brief trip to London and said, Feel this very unwise for many obvious reasons unless you decide it necessary. Otherwise, suggest you use your persuasiveness and have ladies stay put. But Ford had decided to help Ava get the abortion, so he cabled back, Gardner giving superb performance, very charming, cooperative stop. However, really quite ill since arrival Africa, demon imperative, London consultation, otherwise tragic results, stop. Should not affect schedule, weather here miserable, but we're trying, no muzzle but hard work, repeat, believe trip imperative. And so MGM made all the arrangements. 
Abortion was legal in England, so Ava would go there under the pretense of a vague tropical disease. The Los Angeles Times reported that she had drunk the local water and was receiving a course of powerful antibiotics. Frank didn't know that she was pregnant. He read the LA Times story along with everyone else. Then he called her in London to ask what happened. Her voice was weak. She claimed she'd eaten some lettuce and it had made her sick. But she asked about his screen test. He told her, and she was happy for him. She said she was tired. She asked if they could speak later. He said sure, and he encouraged her to rest. Then he drove to Billy Rooster's jewelry store in Beverly Hills to buy her a present. Her birthday and Christmas were coming up, after all. Billy showed Frank a beautiful pair of emerald earrings. How much? Frank asked. 22000 said Rooster. Frank sighed and leaned back from the counter with tears in his eyes. Frank, give the earrings to Ava, said Rooster. Billy, I can't afford these. Rooster put them in a box and pushed it toward Frank. Don't worry about it. You pay me when you have it. This little vignette at the jeweler, given what had actually just happened in London, is admittedly pretty sad. Of course, Frank would then immediately make plans with his friend Jimmy Van Heusen to meet a couple of call girls. And in between his trip to the jewelry store and the call girls, he would drive over to the Holmby Hills house where Big Nancy was still living with their three children. He gave them all early Christmas presents and greeted Big Nancy with a kiss on the mouth. Frank had a deeply divided soul, as we've long established. But to me, the bit with the earrings shows two things. The first is that Frank was still in love with Ava, in his way. The second is that he was able to elicit great loyalty in people. Those earrings are worth $200,000 in today's money. I don't know how often jewelers let people take that kind of stuff on layaway. Maybe Billy Rooster believed that Frank would be back on top someday. He returned to Kenya in December. Ava admitted to him that she'd had an abortion. It was devastating for Frank. For one thing, it reminded him painfully of the time when Nancy had aborted a pregnancy back in 1947. Moreover, it was a blow to his masculine pride, and it implied that Ava didn't want to have a family with him, which further implied that she had doubts about the future of their marriage. Frank basically never spoke to anyone about this except once, when he told Hank Santacola that he should have beaten her fucking brains out for what she did to me and the baby, but I loved her too much. Which is kind of a nasty thing to say. Ava, rather improbably, remembers the month of December 1952 as a charmed time for her and Frank. This comes to us from her memoir, which is a little bit whitewashed, or a lot of bit whitewashed, in certain respects. It may have been a charmed time for her. She had made friends with Grace Kelly, who was having a passionate onset affair with the married Clark Gable. At first, 
Grace had judged Ava really harshly for her tempestuous marriage and for other things she did, like walking naked through the camp on her way to take a bath. Grace was a very restrained person, and Ava was not restrained at all. But Grace started to admire that about her. Ava took young Grace under her wing. She'd only done two other movies before this. Ava introduced Grace to alcohol as well, although Grace didn't have the same prodigious tolerance as Ava and typically had to run into the bushes to vomit after only a few. There had also been much adventure and much danger. Ava and Clark were in a truck that got attacked by a rhino, and an angry hippopotamus nearly capsized a canoe Ava was sitting in. Two lions invaded the camp to loot the kitchen. At Christmas, the company had a party. MGM sent over a chartered cargo plane loaded with 200 fresh turkeys, crates of champagne, and other delights. A dance floor was laid out on the ground. Frank decided to organize a show. He sang Christmas carols, and a chorus of 50 Congolese people sang carols in French. John Ford recited The Night Before Christmas. People ended the night dancing on the tables. I'm sure it was a mess the next morning, but it would have been a sight to see. Still, there was no word from Columbia. Hedda Hopper had reported on December 3rd that the prognosis was good for Frank. And in a second article a week later, she wrote, I think he's just right for the part. His manager assured me that, despite the printed report, Sinatra was not gumming up the deal by holding out for too much do-re-mi. When he wants a part badly, as he does this one, Frank considers money of secondary importance. It was clever for Frank, who almost certainly told Hedda about his willingness to work for nothing, to frame his desperation as beneficence. But it really was desperation, and Frank was starting to lose hope. By the second week of January, 1953, Ava was pregnant again. This time, it couldn't have been his. The date of conception would have been around the time Frank was in New York performing at the French Casino. But Frank didn't realize this and was delighted. He had to leave soon after learning the news. He was headed for Boston, an engagement at the Latin Quarter. From there, he would go to Canada for a week for a show in Montreal. On January 24th, he went over to the Latin Quarter for his first rehearsal. The rehearsal went well, the band was good, and he went back to his hotel alone. Then he got a call. It was Bert Allenberg, his agent calling from William Morris in L.A. Was Frank sitting down? He got the part. He would play Maggio in From Here to Eternity. Frank was in a state of shock. He poured himself two tumblers of Jack Daniels and drank them while pacing, talking to himself. The thing he'd wanted for so long, it was finally his. But ironically, he had a bit of regret for agreeing to work for so little. It could brand him for life as a cut-rate star. What if he could never command the same salary as before? These questions aided him. So he went over to the Storyville Club, where Duke Ellington and Pearl Bailey were on the bill. Pearl Bailey asked him what he was up to. 
Pearl, they've offered me a movie called From Here to Eternity. They're only paying me a thousand bucks a week, which is nothing. Pearl was intrigued. From Here to Eternity? That big book? Yeah, that was the one. Take it. Don't look back, she said. And he did. There's an obvious aside I could veer into here about the Godfather. A lot of people have done whatever they could to create a case that the mob was behind Frank Sinatra getting this role. There are a lot of people who think that Harry Cohn hated Frank Sinatra. But these claims are specious for a couple of reasons. Harry Cohn and Frank Sinatra had been friendly for many years. In fact, in 1949, Frank came down with a case of strep throat so severe that they had to set up an oxygen tent in Manny Sachs's apartment. Very few of Frank Sinatra's so-called friends were there for him during this time. But Harry Cohn apparently came to visit Sinatra every day, sometimes for several hours, until he recovered. You tell anybody about this, you son of a bitch, and I'll kill you, said Cohn as he left Frank after one visit. The second reason why Frank didn't need the mob to intervene at all was because the movie was going to be very expensive. The budget was ballooning, and Eli Wallach had demanded a high fee. Frank would help the pragmatic Cone shore up the costs of production by working for basically nothing. And the third reason why is that when Harry's wife Joan watched the screen test for both Frank and Eli, she said, Eli looks too good. He's not skinny, and he's not pathetic. And he's not Italian. Frank is just Maggio to me. Joan had been a former model. She had a good eye for how things should look. And that tipped Harry Cohn over the edge. On February 2nd, Luella Parsons reported in her column that Frank Sinatra has been notified to report to Columbia in 10 days to start from here to eternity. It would take him longer than 10 days to get there. As you might guess, Ava is the reason why. Thanks for listening to Lovers Forever. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Amber Nelson. The logo was designed by Abby Scheel. All the music is from Epidemic Sound. If you like Lovers Forever, please follow, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, and tell your friends about it. You can find us online at Lovers Forever Podcast on Instagram. We're distributed by Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout.